You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 166, Karen Gonzalez and the God Who Sees. This episode is guaranteed to challenge some of your assumptions. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. Our guest today, she is a speaker, a writer, an immigration advocate, um, and she works for World Relief, which factors in here too. And so I can't wait to, to speak to her. She recently uh, published the book, The God Who Sees Immigrants, the Bible, and the journey to belong. Uh, she is Karen Gonzalez. Karen, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be here with you. It is great to have you on the show. We connected over uh, through Seth Price, right? It's from uh, from the Can I Say This at Church podcast. A little shout out to him. Um, I want to, so tell us a little bit about your story or just, well, we'll go into your story, but tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now. Sure. So I work for an organization called World Relief, and it's a Christian nonprofit organization uh, that works in the humanitarian arena. And so we have two branches of programming. One's in the U.S. where we work with immigrants and refugees. And so we do refugee resettlement. And we also provide immigrant legal services and work with uh, foreign-born survivors of human trafficking. And we also have an international branch where we do um, international development work um, in 15 countries around the world, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. So I'm the HR director, and that's what I do. That is has been what I've been doing in the nonprofit world mm. for the last 12 years or so. But I started working with World Relief and church engagement. And so I would go to churches in the Baltimore, D.C. area and talk about a biblical view of immigration uh, and again, working with primarily evangelical churches, which as you know, have been known in the media <laughs> as unsupportive right. of immigrants and refugees um, and really siding with the president on a lot of his rhetoric that's anti-immigrant. And so that's how I started working at World Relief. And it really just shifted my perspective on so many things, just seeing the way that different churches would respond in some ways. It was very encouraging, very heartening. And in other ways, it was soul crushing just to see <laughs> <laughs> some of the responses. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely an interesting time. So your, your book, I was reading it this morning and uh, I loved how you said, people told you, Hey, this book is exactly what we need right now. And then you were like, no, 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 these stories aren't for, for now. They're for all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that because the Bible doesn't just leave us with, with nothing, right? The Bible gives us, um, a framework for how we should treat, uh, immigrants. And, uh, I think that, so that'll come out through as we talk about your story for sure. Um, okay. So, that's that's really a, an interesting place to start. So take us take us back because you were born in Guatemala, correct? And tell us what life was like there. You kind of had a Catholic kind of a, kind of an interesting combination, right? Your your parents were different sort of Christian traditions. Yes. So I was born in Guatemala, which is a, a Catholic nation, and I would say 
Uh, my parents were nominal Catholics. Uh, neither of them were interested in any kind of serious pursuit of faith, but they did have us baptized in the Catholic Church because that's tradition. You do that in the culture, and it's very, it's very connected in in, uh, in many countries. Catholicism and just the culture in general. And my dad really was an agnostic socialist. Um, and my mom had grown up with a Pentecostal mom and who was pretty fanatical <laughs> about faith. <laughs> and so my mom was just really not interested. Her whole thing was, it's okay to believe in God, but let's not get crazy about it. Oh, interesting. And Yeah. <laughs> so that was really my upbringing. Now I had grandmothers on either side, but I was really close to my mom's mom who was an evangelical Christian, but I didn't actually connect with her until we moved to the U.S. because she already lived here when I was born. Um, but I was interested in faith, always was. And I don't know where that came from other than God was calling me to God's self always. Mm. Because I remember distinctly, I chose to pursue my first communion. My brother didn't, my little sister didn't. But I really wanted to, and so I did. And I remember just all these different moments as a little girl where I was drawn or interested in learning more. Now, I didn't really understand, to be perfectly honest. Sure, which is not uh, – that's fair. I mean, you, you were yeah. a kid. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, many things in – the way that the Catholic Church in Latin America works is different from American Catholicism – because there, you know, there isn't this sense of everybody has their own Bible. You mm. really are trusting the priest to teach the Bible to the community. So there isn't this sense of I need to read my own Bible and have my own quiet time. It's a very different kind of relationship to God. Mm. And so I had really read the Bible, though I had a little children's Bible. And I honestly didn't understand the priest and we didn't have at that time, you know, Sunday school for children. I did go through all the classes for my first communion, but there was a gap. I just, I wanted to know God and this seemed to be the right thing to do, but I didn't really understand what hmm. was going on. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay. So you had these sort of nominal influences, but with some Catholic influences and some Pentecostal influence in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. But then um, you always find yourself drawn in, like drawing, drawing there. I think that's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that with us, because I don't think us Protestant evangelicals out here in the suburbs would figure out, would understand what that's like um, or what the Catholic kind of view uh, or experience is like in South America, right? That Because we, we all have Bibles and I've got like right. 12 of them on the shelf over there. So mm -hmm. it's a different kind of kind of world. Yeah, yeah. And we, we had like one Bible in the house, but, it, you know, it's the equivalent of King James English yeah. to Spanish, which is called Reina Valera in Spanish. And I didn't understand it. So, yeah, it was really different. A few times I had an uncle, my mom's younger brother, live with us and he took me to this what, what I know now was a kind of evangelical Pentecostal church, but at the time it was so fascinating because <laughs> it was a, like in a building that didn't look like a church. It looked like a storefront. <laughs> yeah. And um, they, they had a Sunday school class where they talked about God with puppets and, and, and adults got baptized there in like 
a big pool. It wasn't like a sprinkling. And <laughs> I found it so interesting and so fascinating. But all of those experiences really shaped my early imagination. Mm. Faith. Okay, how? So what was the like end result of those things? Yeah, well, one, I saw that there were different ways to engage with God, that there was a way that I had been taught in this particular Catholic parish, but that that wasn't the only way, that there were adults who could choose to get baptized. It wasn't just for children. Mm. And that was a really fascinating thing for me to learn. But that also you could pray, uh, not just the memorized prayers that came from the scriptures, but you could also talk to God like you were talking to a friend in conversation. And that's the way the people in that storefront church prayed, you know. And so I think I, I recognized, oh, there isn't just one way to do this. Uh, there's actually many ways that people can engage God, and there isn't even just one day to one way to do church. Yeah. So you're interested, but then how does your faith become your own? Mm-hmm. So that took a while. Yeah. <laughs> I would say my faith didn't become fully my own till I was a college student. But when we moved to the U.S., so you know, migration is a really traumatic experience. Well, I imagine um, you're le- you're losing everything. Yeah. But it's also, it also mirrors a little bit the journey of faith. That is that, you know, we all start out as, you know, strangers, but we move toward becoming part of the family of God. And that's something that's mirrored in the immigration experience, right? You leave and you arrive in this new place as a stranger, as everything's foreign to you. And then as you build your life there and integrate into this new community, because, Many of us who are immigration advocates, we're all about integration, but not assimilation. Assimilation is different. Mm. It's losing your identity. But integration is you maintain that identity, but you also become part of the new community. And so that is essentially what people do in the journey of faith. Um, And for me, we moved to um, an urban neighborhood in L.A. And I should mention, you know, both my parents professional people. My mom was a nurse in Guatemala. You know, my dad had a college degree and worked for actually a U.S.-based nonprofit called CARE that did um, uh, humanitarian work. And so those were their jobs in Guatemala. We left not because we sat around dreaming about America (laughs) and the American dream. We left because the U.S. funded a civil war in our country and it destabilized the economy there were death squads that were, you know, murdering our own people essentially with mm. U.S. weapons. And it was because at the time the U.S. government was concerned about having another country in Latin America become communist the way that Cuba had. And so they funded a, a right wing government to do this. And so there was a lot of trauma involved For my brother and me, especially some of the things that we saw in Guatemala that I talk about in the book, including finding dead bodies and seeing people who had been tortured. Um, And so so we left. And so all of those experiences of um, not just the migration and the instability that brings, but also a lot of fear (laughs) that my brother and I dealt with, a lot of fear and anxiety around this war and conflict happening in our country. So we arrived, we live in this urban neighborhood and we'd had a really good life in Guatemala um, in terms of, 
you know, before the war really started in a way that we became aware of. Yeah. I mean, we had a really nice middle-class life in Guatemala. And then all of a sudden we're living in a really um, dangerous neighborhood in uh, inner city, Los Angeles and South LA. Wow. It's not safe to play outside and we don't speak the language and we don't know anyone except our relatives and we don't understand how to navigate this culture so well, my brother <laughs> I have a question though did you sure. did you know that the US was funding that war at the time No Nobody I found did that when yeah. I was in high school gotcha. I talk about in the book when I found out how hard that was for me Okay yeah I was wondering about that because I'd be like, why would you come to the United States if you feel like the United States just ruined your country? No, no. My dad knew. Here's the thing. He knew. Okay. So many of my parents' friends migrated to Canada because Canada gave asylum to uh, people from Guatemala and El Salvador during that time. But because the United States was funding that war, they couldn't provide asylum. The reason we came to the U.S. instead of Canada is because we already had relatives here. And mm. they, my uncle had just become a U.S. citizen. And through family-based migration, he sponsored my dad who oh, then wow. extended that to us. Well, that's really interesting because that's a topic that comes up on the immigration debate, right? And they, some right. people want to get rid of that as a – Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been the cornerstone of our of our immigration system since 1965. But wow. Yeah, some people want that to change, but that's why we migrated here. Otherwise, we might be Canadians today instead of Americans. <laughs> oh, yeah, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a huge community of Guatemalans in Calgary, like middle of nowhere, you know, Canada. <laughs> but Canada provided asylum and said, you can live here, you know? So, um, so uh. yeah, so it was a huge shift for us. And now that information about the U.S. funding the war is common knowledge, A lot of people know that now, but at the time, you know, it was not widely known. Yeah. Some of the things we did in the name of stopping communism are just, is just disgusting. Like it's so disturbing to think that the, the ways that the ends justified the means was just, ugh. have you, have you watched the Vietnam war documentary by Ken Burns? I haven't. Oh, well, it's, it, I may or may not want to watch it, but it was just, it completely opened my eyes to like just how horrific that war was. Um, but also, again, same deal, right? It's the, it's the going in and trying to stop communism to really no effect in the end, which was just awful. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the same thing in Guatemala. I mean, they stopped communism from, spreading but it was one of those at what cost it, yeah did, was it was it really worth it and um yeah it's very interesting okay so there's probably a whole political discussion there that i'll have to ponder yeah. <laughs> and have some other time but i'd rather talk about your story so okay. uh thanks for kind of going with it. i love politics i love that kind of like just contemplating those things but i'd rather talk about you so yeah. uh so you get to you get to la and you don't know the language you don't know the kids you don't know anything you're not you're kind of lost everything except for your family i guess it sounds like what did this do to your faith like how did that feel in the middle of all that Initially, when we moved to the U.S., it was kind of exciting because our dad had left a year earlier and we were going to be reunited with him and we really missed him. So initially it was kind of exciting, but it's one of those things like anything new, right? Once it sinks in that this is your reality now, then it was just really hard because it's being in a classroom and not understanding anything that anyone is saying, and not knowing how to navigate a culture. I remember my brother 
and I were the last ones in class because we didn't understand that school was over <laughs> and that we could go home. We didn't know where all the other kids had gone. Oh, wow. Because we didn't speak the language and our teacher didn't speak Spanish. And uh, so, yeah, it was a very difficult time. And I think just living in a neighborhood that wasn't safe was also hard because we'd had this freedom to play with kids in our neighborhood. And all of a sudden we were just constrained to the house. And in Guatemala, there have always been adults taking care of us. And we had a live-in nanny that lived with us. And all of a sudden all the adults in my house are working all the time. So we're just by ourselves. And, Hmm. you know, they told us don't open the door to anyone. People in the United States take kids away from parents when they're home alone. So don't open the door. And so we're just alone all the time. It was a very lonely existence and where you didn't even find refuge when you went out because it's this foreign environment. And so, you know, sometimes people today will tell me that, they object to things like immigrant churches, like why can't the church just blend together, you know, and be one multi-ethnic, multicultural church. I think for a lot of immigrants, there's a refuge in having an immigrant church because there you can just relax. You can speak your language. You're around people whose culture you understand. It's a refuge for so many adult immigrants to be able to gather together to worship God in a space like that. So, well, and there's a, there's a point there too. Like, Hey, if you want to blend the church, you go to an immigrant church. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Fine. Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Another whole point about multicultural churches where they really just want you to acclimate to them, but they don't want to be uncomfortable in any way. Right. So yeah, totally. (laughs) So the one really good thing about that season is I went to church with my grandma And uh, she spoke English because she's from Guatemala's Caribbean coast, where there's a lot of um, uh, Afro-Guatemalans who are descendants from people in the Caribbean. And so her parents were actually from Barbados, and she was raised speaking English and Spanish. And so she spoke English with a a Caribbean accent, but she spoke it. So she went to an American church, an an African-American church, and we went together, and it was so fascinating to me. It was so lively. And, you know, the Catholic church is very serious and very quiet, but this African-American church was just an exciting place to be. So I loved going to church with her and I loved being with her. And she introduced me to a faith that was vibrant, that was personal, um, that in that I could understand in so many ways, even though there was still the language barrier for me because I, you know, I didn't speak English well. And so, um, so I had a kind of confirmation experience in that church because I had this Sunday school teacher who would, you know, talk to us about Jesus. And she asked me if I wanted to receive Jesus in my heart. And that sounded like a really good thing to me. So I said, yes. And, uh, she actually, we talked about the story of Bartimaeus, um, together and how Bartimaeus told Jesus what he wanted from Jesus. And she asked me, you know, to pray, uh, right before I went to be baptized there, which, you know, my grandma never knew that I was baptized in the Catholic church. She was not Catholic and she would have really objected to that. (laughs) So, so she had me baptized in this, uh, you know, or I, 
I consented to it. I wanted to be baptized. And so I was baptized in this church. And I said my first little prayer in English, uh, which was basically just, Jesus, I want to know you. <laughs> and it was true. I did want to know him. It's more than enough, right? Yeah, it's more than enough. And, but, you know, we, I didn't grow up in that LA neighborhood. We lived there about four years. And then when I was about 12, we moved back to the East Coast where my father's family lived. And we actually settled in Florida. And this is after we got our green cards. And there's one thing I want people to understand if they don't remember anything else, like our lives changed dramatically once we had our green cards because we were undocumented when we arrived in the U.S. Wow. We were in line to receive our immigrant visa through my uncle's sponsorship, but it took two and a half years, you know. So once we finally had this, my parents were free. They no longer lived in fear of deportation, trying to hide and trying to remain unnoticed. Now they could think about things like Little League and music lessons and buying a home. And so we left Los Angeles and left wow. that urban neighborhood. And we settled in Florida in a Tampa Bay area. And so, that's where I grew up. Well, you no longer had to hide. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. What would you say to somebody who, who would say that uh, if somebody's here undocumented, then that a Christian would have a responsibility to the government to report that? I would say that uh, first, unless you're in the state of Arizona, you do not have that obligation according to the mm. law. Uh, we have actually people who call World Relief and ask that very question and wow. do not have an obligation. You can be a friend and a support to that person. Now, the only way that you'd have an obligation is, for example, if they applied to work for you and they didn't have the legal right to work here. Sure. Then, then you do have an obligation to report that. But other than that, you don't have any obligation and you can be a friend and a support to that person without any any fear of compromise. And I would also encourage the person to just consider, you know, I get this question about law a lot and I think it's a valid question. I do not discourage people away from it. But I want to remind people that what's morally right and what's the right thing to do as a Christian is often at odds with mm. the right thing to do as a U.S. citizen. We used to have laws that said it was legal to own a slave. It was legal to deny women the right to vote or own property. It used to be legal that you could abuse your wife and your children without consequence. Lots of things that were legal were immoral and wrong from the perspective of a follower of Jesus. And I believe our immigration laws are such laws as well. Mm. And I think when there's a conflict between a law of God and a law of a nation, the Christian has the responsibility to God. Amen. Above all. Yeah. So one of the light bulbs for me in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so was when I realized that the laws of the United States and the kingdom of God are two different things, mm-hmm. right? So right. the the interest of the United States, I'm, and to be honest, I think the United States has a vested interest in saying, okay, we want to know who's here, right? That totally makes right. sense from a, from a national totally. perspective. But uh, as a Christian, I don't care who you are, right? I, as, if you're here and mm-hmm. you need something, my obligation to you is to, to care for you. And um, I just don't see them as being that, 
that integrated. So I appreciate that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally agree. And I think, I think it's helpful to at least think about that um, in a little more systematic way. Yeah. And our laws can be changed, you know, yes, we, we've changed all kinds of laws that we've decided were unjust and many people feel that way, for example, about repealing Roe versus Wade, the abortion law, right? Many people are working very hard to change that law yeah. because we live in a constitutional republic where that's possible. And that's what a lot of immigration advocates are saying. We're not advocating at all for people to just go around breaking the law. But for us as a country to examine our laws that do two things, really. One, they don't do justice to our neighbors who have humanitarian needs. And two, they don't even take our own labor needs into consideration. We have an aging population and we do not have enough workers for certain jobs in particular. And so it's always been a sort of symbiotic relationship. Um, And lately, you know, we've had our current president. His rhetoric is violent. His rhetoric is dangerous, I believe. And it's demonizing immigrants and promoting fear of immigrants um, and hatred of them instead of really what's required of Christians in terms of dealing with our fellow brothers and sisters who are, no matter where they come from, image bearers of God. Amen. Yeah. So I think it's so fascinating. I'm actually kind of grateful for Donald Trump because I think he forces evangelicals to have to make some decisions, you know, in in ways that we haven't had to before. It was easy in past, um, with past presidents, you know, I mean, somebody like George W. Bush, whatever you thought of him, you know, Billy Graham led him to Christ, right? So yeah, you may not like I his. I believe he's a genuine Christian. Me too. I so. And uh, but so that was easy to just support, right? But a guy like Donald Trump, uh, you have to be a little more thoughtful, <laughs> right? There might be some policies you like. There might not be. You might not like everything. And certainly, I don't love everything that he says or tweets. Uh, but I have to think about it, and I actually think that's a really good thing. I think it's good for evangelicals everywhere to have to go. Eh wait a minute. And maybe I don't want to give blind support to this party. Uh, maybe there's the kingdom. It has some different callings for me. Right. It's a little more clear with him. Yeah. And <laughs> if you're going to support right. uh, what he says or not. Um, and I've heard people say, Oh, you know, it's really, you know, I'm not against what he says, uh, you know, necessarily, but the way he says it, yeah, it's not appropriate. The tweeting, But I think we saw in El Paso that when a person in power um, demonizes immigrants, it's dangerous. You know, it's it leads to violence and it leads to making that group of people even more vulnerable than they already are. So immigration does not harm countries. Fear of immigration definitely harms countries. Mm. Yeah. And I wish, okay. So last thing on politics, but I wish that we would just get together and fix the immigration system. It seems to me like mm-hmm. it's not really that hard. There's thing we should have a temporary worker yeah. visa. Like, but why, why haven't we done that yet? There's clearly that's, we know people are coming to do this. Let's right. just give them a visa. Like let's figure out how to do it and figure out who they are and all that. Anyway, I wish that we yeah. would, we would do that. Um, yeah. So that's okay. That's a good conversation to have. Thank you for kind of going there just a little yeah. bit. I love hearing it from your perspective as a person who's gone through it and then going, okay, but now we're, we're here. 
and able to actually work and and change your life. So you moved to Florida. Sorry, we got kind of sidetracked there, but yeah, so you moved, moved to Florida. To Florida. <laughs> and uh, Florida was a great place for immigrants. It's one of the reasons my parents chose it. One, uh, it was primarily populated by Cubans and Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans are Americans. They're migrants, not immigrants. And Cubans yeah. were refugees. So they were also legal uh, residents. And because of that, Florida did not have a lot of the anti-immigrant sentiment we'd experienced in California. And so hmm. it was a great place for my parents, the climate, not unsimilar from the Caribbean coast of Guatemala. And so, you know, they really appreciated all of those things. And so, yeah, it was a great, um, it was a great place for us to grow up. We also lived in a very safe area. We moved to a uh, suburb of St. Petersburg and we went to really good schools. I mean, my brother and I and our two cousins were literally the only Latino kids at our school. Oh, wow. Our school had no ESL program, nothing like that. Um, and so this allowed us to integrate really well uh, into American culture. But it was also lonely, honestly. It's hard not seeing people that look like you. It's hard not seeing yourself reflected in the people around you, except for your family. And so as much as that helped us in some ways, um, it was also kind of a blow to our identity and our sense of worth in the world around us. And, you know, my parents were working. And so we, we appreciate everything that they did for us. We appreciate that we went to good schools and we lived in a safe area. You know, we weren't exposed to gang violence or a lot of the things that many immigrant communities face. And so we're grateful to that. But one of the things that I lost when I moved was my grandma because she stayed in California mm. and, uh, and she was really my anchor of faith, like the spiritual mother of my family. And when I lost her, I sort of lost that connection. And what brought her to us was actually a very sad event that really has shaped and affected my faith ever since is that my mother became ill with cancer when she was 37 and I just assumed, of course, she's going to get better. Grandma had cancer, too, and she got better. Um, but my mom had a very aggressive form of breast cancer, and she had died when she was 39. And so my grandma wow. came during the time that my mom was sick and, you know, took care of her and was with us and living with us. And she also brought us back to church. And so I started going to church with her and to this youth group and, and so that's kind of what brought me back to being in church circles was her moving in with us. But also losing my mom was a huge barrier to faith or trust in God. It just seemed like, how could God let this happen to me when this mother I needed so much died so young? And so, so things came to a head with my grandma because, and this is something that I think isn't talked about very openly, but something that a lot of immigrant children face is that we're growing up between two cultures mm -hmm. and one culture at home. You know, I lived in a Guatemalan space at home. It might as well have been in Guatemala because that's the way it was in my home. The food that we cooked and the way that the house smelled and the way that it ran, everything about it was Guatemalan. 
including its values. And its values were very authoritative. You're supposed to just listen to your parents. There's no negotiations. Oh, man, um, I could use some of that with my kids. Yeah. Let me tell you. <laughs> And very uh, communal also. There's a lot of sense of communal responsibility. So you don't just uh, do for you, but the decisions you make are for the good of the household. But then we would leave and the script would flip completely. We'd be in school and all of a sudden there, it's very egalitarian. Not just between, you know, boys and girls, but also teachers encourage you to question them and to (laughs) uh, think critically about things. And then... And it was very individualistic there. There wasn't a lot of cooperation. There was a lot of competition for best grades. And so these are the two worlds that we navigated. And of course, all our education is in the U.S. from, you know, fourth grade on. And what happens is that you build a lot of allegiance to the culture that you actually live in, which for us was the U.S., And as that happens, you become more and more alienated from your parents because you understand them less and less. They live by these weird Mm. values that you don't get or understand. And so one of the things that happened when my mom was sick is that my parents and I mean, my dad and my grandma didn't want us to tell anyone she was dying and didn't want us to tell her she was dying because in Guatemala, it's a very common belief that, you know, sort of mind, body are connected. And if you tell someone that they're dying, they're going to lose their fight for life. Mm. And they're, it's the, you know, they're going to be overcome with fear and sadness. So instead you should carry that weight, you know? And so they didn't tell my brother and sister, my mom was dying. They, you know, it was just, and I was so like, this is wrong. We should talk to her and she should make plans and she should, maybe she has things she wants to say and do and, you know, but I didn't even know that about America, about Guatemalan culture and the values around death. And so this just alienated me from both of them because my grandma, who I'd always trusted, who I'd been close to all of a sudden was doing something I didn't think was very Christian or very appropriate. And so when my mom died, my grandma expected something else that happens in Guatemala. And that is that the oldest child typically just stays home, especially when the mother dies. Uh, the oldest daughter would just stay home until the last child is raised, basically. So she's like, so I think I think you should delay college for six years. And then when you're 24, your sister will be graduated from, you know, high school. And then you can all go away together, you know. Wow. <laughs> and that's different. Yeah, and it's a very big uh, social responsibility in Guatemala, right? Again, the decisions are made for the good of the household, not for the good of the individual, you know. And so I was like, no, I never even heard of that here. And nobody I knew in that church youth group that she took me to, nobody else was doing that. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And, And it ruptured our relationship. Unfortunately, it ruptured it permanently. And I was so young, I didn't understand what was at work for my grandma. All I knew was that I was grieving and sad and I couldn't stay home mm-hmm. with a little girl. And so I went away to college and I didn't go far. I went to the University of South Florida, which was just across the bay, about an hour away. And there I joined an intervarsity uh, Christian fellowship group, which is a parachurch ministry, uh, just a college ministry group that's uh, non-denominational. And that's really where I learned to follow Jesus, where I 
could say I became a disciple. I learned how to read my Bible. I learned how to um, different ways that I could pray. And I received teaching that was accessible to me because we were all college students and our staff worker, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, geared all the messages to us. And it was still hard when I thought about losing my mom. This was this has been an ongoing sort of obstacle in my life of faith. It's something I still struggle with from time to time because it was such a, a painful and difficult thing for me. And so that's really where this journey began in earnest, you know? Um, yeah. And so. Wait, what does that mean? Meaning that I really understood what it meant to follow Jesus and what the cost would be of following Jesus. Gotcha. As opposed to like, Oh, I've gained a social group or, you know, um, or I just go to church on Sunday. I really was part of a community of faith I called the the book The Journey to Belong because that's the first place where I felt I really belonged outside of my own little family unit. Mm. You know, it was this group of people uh, and we we're all part of the family of God together. And that's where I really began to grow in my faith. And after I graduated, I went to, you know, everybody in my group went to conservative evangelical churches and to be honest, I didn't know there was any other kind. I grew up a nominal Catholic. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I had no idea. And that began to be difficult for me because I have a really strong personality and a lot of leadership gifts. And I just began to see that women's roles were really limited. Mm-hmm. And I was even invited to a women's Bible study. And all they did was talk about marriage. And I was like, I'm single. <laughs> they talked about you know they actually said this that's so cliche but yeah yeah the highest calling of a woman is to be a wife and mother and i'm like i'm not either of those things what does this what does this mean about my life what what does that say about what we think of of people it just yeah that bothers me but okay (laughs) so yeah so that was a really uh difficult it was, it was a good season in terms of growth, but it was also hard because there were other things too, just identity questions that I had around being a woman, being a Latina, and, and where that sort of fit into my story with God. Basically, I was being told all the time that the only identity that mattered was being a Christian, but mm. then I would read the mm. Bible and see that when God, when Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman, he encounters her as a Samaritan and as a woman, yeah. not just as a random person, you know, that's like generic in any way. And to me, it seemed like these things mattered. And then I began to have other questions that I asked because, again, I have a strong personality, <laughs> but but I was given very blanket answers to just shut me down. There was no conversation. So, for example, one day our pastor preached about the death penalty. What? And I said... Uh, yeah, he just talked about how life was precious and the death penalty was, it was part of the sermon. It was okay. not the sermon. Okay, good. And I said, I have a question. It seemed to me that Jesus was executed by the state. He himself was a victim of the death penalty. And we see that it's unjust. And there's so many, we read stories of people who, um, you know, were given the death penalty and then DNA evidence suddenly said that they were innocent. And it seems like our justice system is not infallible. 
and death is permanent. And it just seems to me that maybe churches shouldn't be in favor of a death penalty. Yeah. And it was just a question, but it was like, no, <laughs> life is sacred. And so I, there wasn't ever like, well, let's have a conversation around that, you know, or Karen, believe it or not, there are theologians, um, both sides of this issue right. who are faithful Christians who have arrived at different conclusions on this issue. There was no conversation like that. And it came up over and over again, the same time they were talking about Israel in my church and how it was right for the church and the U.S. to support Israel. But I had just heard of this bombing where all these little Palestinian children had died. And I said, I just can't believe that God is on the side of this. God is on the side of justice. That's what you've told me. And how can God excuse everything that Israel does, even when it's evil, you know, even when an action is evil and, and, takes away the lives of children. Ooh, that's so, a sacred cow, Karen. That's that's <laughs> difficult. What? You can't, but I didn't know this because how dare I didn't you? grow up in that environment. You right. know? So I'm just asking questions. Oh, man. Some of them were more simple. Like I said, I think it's Ooh. weird that people say Song of Solomon is about God's love for us. I said, that seems to me <laughs> yeah, to that's... not be right because it's very <laughs> sexual language and... That's a dynamic that's absent in my relationship with God. <laughs> so, but again, it was like, you know, very black and white. And I was, I didn't push back because for one, women were not supposed to do this. But two, I didn't really know. For all I knew, they were right anyway. But I still was unsettled and yeah. had these questions. And there was just nowhere to process them. So where did they take the, where did these questions take you? Well, mostly I internalize them. I talk about <laughs> how I have this little shelf in my head, you know, of stuff I'm going to deal with at some point that I'm unsettled about. And when the subject comes up, you know, I feel really uncomfortable because I have questions about this. And one of them was the role of women in the church, mm -hmm. things like the death penalty, things like Israel, you know, even just the way we look at scripture and uh, young Earth, all of these things. My church brought this Creation Institute to come do a conference oh, yeah. at our church. And <laughs> so I had all these questions and I just felt like, well, I'm just going to sit with these because I don't know what else to do. But in the midst of all that, I ended up going on a short-term mission trip to Russia, uh, working with children in the Russian Far East through the Red Cross. And I felt like God was calling me to go overseas for a longer period. So I did. I went to um, former Soviet Union, Kazakhstan and Russia, mm. and for several years. And that's when I feel a real crisis hit for me. Um, one, I was in my early 30s and I was single. So it just seemed to me everything I'd been taught about women seemed like there was kind of no place. And one of the things that interested me in missions was the fact that, oh, all kinds of women missionaries come to my church and talk about and give testimony to the work they're doing. That seems to be the one appropriate place that women can serve. Right. And I felt drawn, you know, just to, to, to serve God in this way. But when I was in Kazakhstan, all of a sudden, the gospel that I had been taught did not seem to work. And that brought me to a place of crisis because I reasoned if the gospel doesn't work here, 
then it's not true because it should work everywhere. If God loves the whole world, if God gave his son for the whole world, then that gospel should work everywhere. And that was really hard because people in Kazakhstan and Russia were just surviving. They didn't care about apologetics or the stuff I had read Mm. in More Than a Carpenter. They didn't care about that. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, explain this to us. What does that mean? The gospel doesn't work. Sure. So basically what I've been taught was you receive Jesus into your heart and you begin a, a lifelong process of sanctification and discipleship. And this discipleship just makes you a slightly better person. So you have fewer bad thoughts and <laughs> gossip less and are more kind to the people around you. And yeah. then you become a wife and mother, which is the highest calling for women. And God blesses that by, you know, providing you parking spots close to the grocery store when you have a lot of groceries or a kind stranger who helps you when your kid is throwing a tantrum at Target. And I don't think that anyone who was teaching me this gospel was actively teaching those things. They weren't. But that's what I was seeing. And that's the way it seemed to be working. And when I arrived in Kazakhstan and met other Christians there, there was a very small Christian church there because it's a Muslim nation. They didn't have those kinds of questions. For one thing, everybody worked because it's a matter of survival. So there was no like culture of, oh, women stay home and make beautiful homes. That's not an option. Um, mm. and I've never, people, can I just say, I've never sure. really thought of that as, as privilege, but I guess it is, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Okay, good. Right. When you're surviving, everybody has to contribute, right? Everybody has to work. Yeah. And so as a matter of fact, in that culture, it's grandparents who raise kids because, and they live with you because the parents have to work and the elderly people, that's their sort of. That's how they care. contribute. Yeah. Okay. As they get older. Wow. Um, yeah. So all the stuff I've been prepared to and sharing the gospel and talking about apologetics and They didn't care about that. It was like, can God make a difference in my life? And can God change this really corrupt and evil government that I live under? Because my discipleship had taught me that it was just for me, you know, to become a a, a slightly better person than before. But they wanted discipleship that would change the whole community, yeah, You know, that would affect the whole government at a systemic level, like transformation of that kind. I wasn't equipped for that. I didn't know anything about that. You know, I could tell you how to stop having sex with your boyfriend, <laughs> but I couldn't tell you how, you know, how we can come together as a community to advocate for change for everyone. And so that's what I mean. The gospel that I'd been taught wasn't, didn't work there. People didn't ask the same questions they did not have the same needs. And so that brought me to a real crisis. So when I came home, um, you know, I was really lost and I was really struggling in my faith. And I struggled with the church that I used to go to and the friendships that I had there. Also, it seemed like so many of my friends had gotten married and mm. I, my life wasn't moving in that direction. And so there was no place for me in this church as a single woman, you know? And so somebody gave me a book, 
by a woman named Carolyn James. I don't know if you know her. I don't. She's awesome. You should have her on your podcast. Oh, make an introduction. <laughs> That'd be great. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so I read a book called When Life and Beliefs Collide. And it's a book by Carolyn James. And she tells the story of, among many things, her struggle with infertility mm. and getting married late in life. Uh, but also, she went to seminary. And she was. it was the first time I'd read a book. You know, my church had done lots of Beth Moore Bible studies. And God bless Beth Moore. Amen. There's nothing wrong with her. <laughs> but... I had never read a book by a woman who called herself a theologian and who had a seminary degree. And she talked about seminary and the study of theology as a, as a way to know God, as a pathway to God, not as some ivory tower that was remote and only for certain people. And the book just really spoke to me in a way that nothing else had in terms of the way she talked about the Bible. And she research the context, the historical context, and the roles of women, you know, the Greco-Roman household codes, and all these things I had never heard of. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so it was because of her that I began praying and exploring um, going to seminary. And I went to visit several seminaries. I visited Dallas and Gordon-Conwell and Trinity out in Chicago. Oh, yeah. That's you where I went. Been? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I ended up going to Fuller because Fuller was the only one in an urban area yeah. <laughs> that I really liked. And so I felt more comfortable. I saw a lot of people that looked like me. Also, I didn't know what I thought about women in leadership at the time. I was very closed off to that. But Fuller was very pro-women. And I thought, well, at least it'd be a place where I could explore that because they allow for that. Yeah. And so I did, I went, I went to Fuller and seminary saved my faith. Wow. It really, when people say that they went to seminary and lost their faith, I'm always shocked because I went there to study missiology and theology, which I did. I graduated in 2011. And I can tell you that all those questions that I kept on my shelf, I could finally put on the table now, they didn't necessarily have answers. <laughs> right. <But> it, <laughs> Which is not the point. People think sometimes that's yes. the point. It's not the point. It's to help you think, yeah. to teach right. you to think. Yeah. And at least we could discuss the questions and we could put them on the table and we could look what different people uh, thought about them. We could also look at how the church had looked at these issues historically, you know, and I learned that. That's where I learned that this whole rapture dispensationalist theology was not <laughs> – that old it was born right. in the 19th century you know? how great is it when you can get rid of that right <laughs> Woo. Yeah. gone so so it was a and i also learned that god does care about our personal growth and transformation but god also cares about the transformation of the world god also the gospel is not just for eternity for some far off heaven but also for now God wants the kingdom here and now, you know, that tension of already, but not yet. Right. Because Jesus is with us now. And so I'm like, you know, I wish I'd known this when I went to Kazakhstan. <laughs> I wish I'd known. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so that really was, and you know, not that everything was easy about seminary. It's expensive. And I was displaced, you know, from Florida all the way to California, but but it was also a very, uh, a very good season of my life. And I never again have had 
a kind of crisis where I'm like, I don't know if I can be a follower of Jesus. Even when I struggle in my faith now, I struggle the way that Peter does, where he says to Jesus in John's gospel, Lord, where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. Yeah. You know, this is this is the only place I have to go. So Anyway, so that's sort of <laughs> the trajectory of my story. It's probably more uh, than you were looking. No, for. it's fantastic. Exactly what I want. I love stories like that. So I, I was just reflecting on how you have this sort of crisis of faith because of what you've been taught, and then the answer to that is to go and learn uh, differently, right? To go and, and think differently about your about your faith, which is really cool. That's. Uh, that's a good example. I mean, sometimes that's how it has to be, right? When you mm-hmm. when you are losing or you you realize that hey, this doesn't work, and you see this right now. I've been reflecting a lot on people who are deconstructing. You know, the Joshua Harris news came out last week, right? And uh, not just him, but I have a bunch of friends who I've interviewed or or talked to online that that are going through that in one stage or another. And I wonder about it, but part of it is I think it's it's actually really good. Like I said, losing the dispensationalism, that's a good thing because that's yeah. not a that's not really biblical, I don't think. But going through it is hard. And so yeah. just having an example of of somebody like yourself who goes through and says, Okay, well then it's time for me to study and find find out about this and really mm-hmm. dig into it. And how mm-hmm. deeply enriching that is yes. is really powerful. That actually um it cultivates your faith, not destroys it. Um, seminary can be a hard time. It, I've, mm-hmm. I can attest. Um, I had a hard time for different reasons, but it was, it is a really important season and you can't, uh, can't undervalue it. No. And I feel it really helped for me. One of the huge the two things that I learned in seminary. One is the ability to hold things in tension Mm-hmm. To not, uh, it's not so black and white anymore, but to know that historically the church has looked at so many different issues and there had been good and faithful Christians on both sides of something like the death penalty yes, or God's relationship to Israel or, you know, that was very, very good to learn. And the other thing was that nobody's faith is static and that our faith must evolve. The Christian that I was when I was 18 is not the Christian I am today. And I'm sure neither are you. No, not in any Because close. faith should, we should be growing and changing uh, with God as God reveals more of God's self to us, as God um, reveals new teachings or new prophetic calls, or as we grow, our faith should change. And one of the things that made me sad about the Josh Harris announcement that he was walking away from his faith or had walked away from his faith is that it seemed that that this teaching is missing in a big part of the church yeah. where people, even the language of deconstruction, are people not being taught that faith should evolve, that in fact that's normal and good and that when illusions fall away, we get a newer and fresher perspective and you know, a closer relationship to God. And that's been so enriching oh, yeah. in my life. Well, so one of the reasons I started this podcast is why it's called Halfway There, right? We're never going to be there. We're, we're always on the mm-hmm. journey. Uh, but the idea that um, that there is a journey and that between sections of the journey, there's often this disorientation and reorientation. 
right? There's right. orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And that just keeps happening over and over again. Uh, so what I wanted to do, and I think you've done so beautifully, is to just illustrate for people in the lives of regular people how that works, right? That right. that it actually ha- it does happen, and then you find your stride, and then maybe something else happens. And you're like, whoa, what, what's going on here? And then you have to reorient and understand again. And uh, if we commit to that as our as part of our faith journey, it it changes the way that we interact with each other, particularly when it does get messy because it does. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people get messy, just get dropped. And that's not okay with me. Right. Um, Okay. So that's all very beautiful and I love it. So you share a lot of your story in your book, Mm -hmm. um, but you also go through some of the immigrant stories in the Bible, which I thought was a really brilliant way of, of doing that and showing us that, Hey, the Bible's not absent immigration stories, right? Right. Jesus yeah. was a refugee at one point, right? So let's mm-hmm. let's maybe inform how we think about um, people in those situations from the heroes of our faith. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I believe that writing the book in that way was sort of a revelation from Jesus because I was reading the gospel one day in Mark and I came across a parable and I was like, you know, it's so brilliant the way that Jesus engaged people with stories. People asked him a question and he would tell them Mm -hmm. a story. (laughs) And I was like, you know, I want to do that in my book about immigration. I want to tell people stories about biblical immigrants and I want them to see the Bible through that lens of the immigrant, the outsider and what that's like. And Wow. When I began reading the Bible through that lens, there are so many, there's so much movement of people in the Bible. There are so many immigrants. And I was particularly moved by the story of Ruth because I tell in the book, I'd been taught that story as a story about love and loyalty. And it is, that's the beauty of the Bible too. <laughs> yep. uh, I've been taught that story as a story of a kinsman redeemer which I don't think is accurate because the, the, the main character in the story is Naomi. She's the only one that undergoes a dramatic change from mm. beginning to end. And Boaz uh, is actually a minor character in this story. But yes, the story of the Kins and Redeemer is also there, this kind of uh, Jesus figure, right? Um, and then when I read the story, I was like, wait, this is a story about immigration. You have... Naomi's family migrates to Moab because of famine and then experience the unimaginable losses of widowhood and losing your children and then returns because of famine and brings one of her daughters-in-law with her because of this famine. They're economic immigrants. Right. (laughs) They're not even refugees. They're economic immigrants because they're, they're, coming to find sustenance and also to keep their family together and so what I love about the story you know I remember taking a class on Hebrew prophets when I was at Fuller and being so (laughs) discouraged by how often God would raise up a prophet to call the people back from some terrible disobedience some terrible thing they had done idolatry or abusing the poor or any number of things But in the book of Ruth, the people of God obey God's commands. It's beautiful. 
I mean, that community in Bethlehem, they receive Ruth and they treat her exactly as the law of God commands. They let her glean in the fields and pick up what the harvesters had left behind, which was God's provision for the poor and the marginalized. They protect her. You know, Boaz says to his workers, hey, no abuse, no assault. Don't scold her. He invites her to his table. You know, these Moabites were considered unclean. They were despised, despised people. She's drinking from the same containers that they are and eating with them at the same time. And she even marries into this community because she's so received and welcomed and loved as one of their own. And I just fell in love with that story. We have this Mm. beautiful example of the people obeying God. And we have, and of course, Boaz, you know, representing the people, because he's a person of power in that community. But he's also a follower of Jesus, a follower of God. Sorry, right, not Jesus right. at this point, but a follower of God and How, someone who obeys God's command. Well, you know what I think is interesting about that? Because one of God's commands also was not to intermarry with the people around them. Yes. And yet the righteousness is shown in all the other ways, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not really like this doesn't, you know, so maybe the guy, I forget who, what his name was, who initially marries Ruth um, and dies. Naomi's kid. Yeah, Naomi's son. Yeah. Son, right. Alan or Chilean, one of them. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he, so then he dies and then they go back and, and Boaz, Boaz shows God's righteousness in, in obeying God's law. But breaking that one, it's kind of interesting. I'd never thought yeah. of it that way. Yeah. He breaks that one, but it's interesting because she's a faithful um, foreigner, right, who has right. pledged allegiance to the God of that community. Right. And so maybe that's that's the yeah. difference, but uh, very, and I think, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, really a beautiful story. But I started seeing how many foreigners there were in the scriptures, how even Abraham the first time we meet him, God asks him to migrate. Abraham becomes a lawbreaker in a foreign land. He commits fraud. He says Sarah is his sister instead of his wife. He essentially traffics her. She gets put in the palace while he grows wealthy with cattle and all kinds of different things. It's so interesting, though, when as you're talking about that, how putting that language to it. Because we don't normally do that, right? We soft pedal a little little bit. Mm -hmm. But putting that language like he traffics Sarah, whoa, that's a whole different story all of a sudden. Yeah, it really is. And all of a sudden it's like, what? So, um, yeah, it's not, not... Not at all what we, the story we like to tell about the father of our faith. But yet it's part of Abraham's story. And yet, you know, I'm always reminded by the the civil rights attorney, um, Brian Stevenson, who says, all of us are more than the worst thing that we've done. Mm. And that's true. It's true of Abraham too, right? We don't think of him as the trafficker. We think of him as faithful, we think of him as the founder, you know, of yeah. the faith. And so, and that's really the same courtesy I would like extended to undocumented immigrants. Yes, you know, they may have crossed the border or overstayed a visa, but that isn't the defining moment of their life, you know. And many of them did that out of desperation, just as Abraham and Sarah were desperate and only seeking sustenance in Egypt. 
It's what most immigrants are seeking as well. Just a place to feed their families, a place to find refuge or safety, you know, a place where they can reunite their family if they've been separated mm. by, you know, a father working abroad. So, wow. Yeah, well, I think it's a powerful. It is. What if we were a people who uh, saw uh, a, who saw others coming for sustenance or freedom? Um, and whether it is people as the United States of America or uh, just simply the church within the United States who saw that and had compassion right, and cared mm-hmm. that that is who I think we're called to be. And uh, it's, it's a different, it's different. We can't just uh, listen to one side of the aisle. We have to listen to, to who it is that God's calling us to be. Right. And is hmm. there, are we turning away? A Ruth, an Abraham, a Sarah. That's what we have to think about. You know, Jesus himself uh, says, I was an immigrant. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I mean, to think about the idea of, I visited the border recently, the idea of turning Jesus away at the border is very disturbing to me. That Jesus would arrive poor, he would be destitute, and that we would turn him away at the border. And wow. that's something that all of us need to reckon with, is that that idea. And one of the things that I do when I, encourage, when I go speak about immigration is I just encourage people to reflect, because I believe only the Holy Spirit can change hearts, Amen. can change minds. And so I tell people, Be honest with yourself in the presence of God and reflect on this question. Is my view of immigration primarily informed by my faith? That's it. I said, you don't have to answer me right now. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it may require time for you to think about, and you may need to do some research to find out what the Bible says. But it's an important question for all Christians to consider, because if we are followers of Jesus, this should be what primarily informs our view, not just on immigration, but on lots of issues. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I love that. And I think that's a great place to maybe just leave that question. We'll, we'll end right there. Okay. So people can find you, your website. I've got right here. It's uh, Karen-Gonzalez.com. Correct. And they can find your book, uh, The God Who Sees Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. Uh, wherever they can get books, certainly Amazon. And of course, as always, my friends, I have links at uh, halfwaytherepodcast.com in the show notes. So those are there to make it easy. If you're out there working out, you're driving, you're going somewhere, listen to this very long conversation, which I've loved. Uh, go go there. I've got links to everything we talked about, including the books that you mentioned and uh, all that. So we've, we've got it. Um, Karen, anything else you want to just leave us with? No, but you can also find me if you want to connect and talk more about these issues. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram, the same handle at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. Would love to chat with you. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. Thank you so much, Eric. 